Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzevin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Seligson. What's up, Dan? Hey, Miriam. You know, over the last couple of years, we have talked to a lot of people from all over the place. But today, we're turning our focus to someone doing inspiring things right here in Greater Boston. That's right. We received a listener suggestion that we speak with Rabbi Susan Abramson of Temple Shalom Emmeth in Burlington about her work defending asylum seekers and immigrants. So we reached out to her to learn more. And we learned that she's a trailblazer. Rabbi Abramson has been the rabbi of Temple Shalom Emmeth since 1984 and is the longest serving female rabbi in Massachusetts. She attended Brandeis and was ordained at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion in 1981. In 2006, she received a Doctor of Divinity degree, also from Hebrew Union. Rabbi Abramson has served on the executive board of the Central Conference of American Rabbis, Action for Post-Soviet Jewry, and as the Northeast chairperson for the Women's Rabbinic Network. She's the author of the Rabbi Rocket Power series of Jewish children's books. She's also a co-founder of Burlington Area Clergy for Justice, an interfaith group of clergy and supporters who stand for immigrant rights and protest a local ICE facility each month. We're delighted to have Rabbi Abramson on the podcast today to talk about her work and career and why protesting is a very Jewish thing to do. Rabbi Abramson, thank you so much for joining us today on The Vibe of the Tribe. It's great to be here, and, and I'm so glad that you asked me to join you today. Well, you're uh, the longest-serving female rabbi in New England. You've got a fascinating story. What was it like as a rabbi here when you started? Do you feel kind of like a pioneer? Okay, so um, I grew up in Newton, so I was familiar with this area. And I went to Brandeis, so I was very familiar with the area. Uh, I was also a student rabbi at Temple Israel in, in Boston, uh, where, which is where I grew up. And when I first became a rabbi, I went to Philadelphia um, in a large congregation, which wasn't exactly to my liking. It, it was um, very, very large and very fancy, and, and uh, uh, I just didn't feel comfortable there. And then I came back here to Burlington, Massachusetts, in a little congregation which I had actually served when I was a senior at Brandeis. They were looking for a rabbi. They didn't have a rabbi at the time. And uh, Rabbi Axelrad, who was the Hillel rabbi, said, oh, th this little congregation is looking for somebody to lead high holiday services. Would you be interested? So I said, sure. So I led high holiday services there, and I, I went back a few times during the year. And then when I was looking in the job placement for the Reform Rabbinate, and it, it said Burlington, Massachusetts, I said, oh, wow, I, I know all about Burlington, Massachusetts. So I came back up here. The rest is history. And I, I really, really felt comfortable. It seemed like everybody there were like my cousins. I just mm -hmm. felt like a, an immediate connection because I grew up in the area and everybody just seemed familiar to me. And it was a down-to-earth congregation and, and uh, everybody seemed to share the same values and the, and the same kind of way of being as I did. So it was, really, it was a really good match. It was meant to be. Yeah, and that, that was in 1984. What were some of your early priorities and initiatives once you arrived? 
Well, it was a very small congregation. Uh, there were about 70 families, I believe, and they had all only had a part-time rabbi before I got there. So I really felt like I could spend a lot of time building up the congregation. So I started a confirmation class there for, for kids in grades 8 through 10. I built up the religious school. I started all different kinds of committees. I started a, a program for uh, called Temple Tots for, the, for families with very young children. And I tried to, to begin lots of initiatives that would round out the synagogue program. And I felt like I, I needed to establish a personal connection with every single person there. And I, I tutored all the bar and bat mitzvah kids myself from beginning to end, and, and uh, I named a lot of babies, and and uh, I, I performed a bunch of marriages, So so I, and I, I spent a lot of time dealing with people who were ill to try to establish connections with them and help them through tough times in their lives. Uh, we had a, um, a group for people who were uh, bereaved, a bereavement group, uh, So and I started a youth group there for, for kids in grades for grades 7 through 10 and, and for 10 through 12. So I, I tried to, to provide programming for every segment of the population and every sort of uh, life, and all through their lifespans. Now, one segment uh, were young children. Yes. And parents who read to them. Yes. You wrote some books. Yes. Yeah, so, so the books came somewhat later. The books came, so, so I, I came to Burlington, to Temple Shalom Emmeth in 1984, and I wrote, started to write the Rabbi Rockapower series of Jewish children's books in 2001. And I did that for a few reasons. First of all, my before I became a rabbi, I always wanted to be a writer when I grew up. Um, so that was really... I was sure you were going to say astronaut. <laughs> you said writer. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you. I would never in a million years want to be an astronaut. <laughs> so, so um, but I did love superheroes because my son, who was uh, five or six at the time, was a very picky reader but the only books he really loved to read and I loved to read with him were the Captain Underpants series, which oh, you may or may not be a familiar classic. with. I'm a very classic. Familiar. So, you know, Captain Underpants transforms into this semi-superhero and goes on these crazy adventures. And, and, and my son and I would just read, read them every single night and he would laugh and laugh and laugh. And that was the only thing that I could get him to really read and enjoy. So I decided why not create a Jewish version of Captain Underpants to, in order to teach Jewish children and non-Jewish children to teach every, all children about the Jewish holidays in a fun way where, where they could enjoy learning about the holiday without really thinking that it was onerous. or uh, and, and also for, to have a female superhero was very unusual in the Jewish community because I had done a survey of Jewish children's literature and, and um, almost all Jewish children's children's literature at the time did not feature a woman in a rabbinic role, yeah. <laughs> let alone a superhero role or even the dominant role in a story. So my son and I kind of came up with this whole genre. So we, I wrote a Hanukkah book and um, it was also 2001 right after the, the bombings of the World Trade Center. And um, it kind of felt like people just needed a superhero at the time and something positive to focus on and the feeling of control over a society that was, that was really in mourning. So I, I wanted something to be fun and light and airy. And, and uh, so I wrote the Hanukkah story and I, and I brought it into my son's school. He went to the Rashi school. Um, so I read it to his kindergarten class and, and all the kids laughed and laughed. So I thought, okay, good, I'm on to something. And then I had a, a, somebody in my congregation who grew up in my congregation who was a, a wonderful uh, artist be, become the illustrator. This was really a temple, a whole temple event. The, the publisher 
is a member of my congregation. The art director is a member of my congregation. The editor is a member of my congregation. So it was a real temple endeavor, and, and we put the book out, and uh, it, it went crazy. Like, like people bought it all over the country, and, and, and so then we wrote the second book about Shabbat, then uh, Passover, and then Tu Bishvat, which is my favorite. And I noticed on but, your phone case when you oh, came yes, in. Yes, I have a, yes. I have a Rabbi Rockefeller <laughs> phone case, which nobody can see. We might have to get a photo of that. Right. Okay. <laughs> So speaking of society, you're very active in Burlington Area Clergy for Justice, an Mm -hmm. organization you helped to found. What does the organization do and how did it get started? In uh, after 2016, there was obviously a need for us to stand up to what was happening in the country and the immigration policies, um, what was happening to children and families. And, And we happened to for better or for worse, probably for worse, have the regional ICE office in our, literally in our backyard. It's literally down the street from the temple, right behind the Burlington Mall. And so I started going to protests there, um, and I was seeing all these rabbis and clergy, people of, clergy of all denominations coming into Burlington to have these protest marches. And I thought, this is right in our backyard. We really need to take responsibility of this for ourselves. So uh, I got together with a number of the ministers in town, and we decided to start a monthly walk there and call it a Jericho walk, which which, which the others had been, which we had gone to. So um, we've been doing them every single month for the past year and a half, and we average between like 60 and 100 people at each one. And we just had one yesterday, as a matter of fact. So what happens during the walk? So we gather everybody together. And the amazing thing is that, that people of all ages attend. It's, it's at 1 o'clock, so, so we don't have many kids. But we have people, and what I'm proudest of is that, that we have people who are really in the in the in their later years from uh, Carlton Willard Village, which is a retirement home not far away, there's a whole group of, of them who come like, like, like to every single march and march the whole length of the way down, down the street and, and stand on Mall Road holding up signs. And then we, we walk around the building. Uh, we walk around the building so that we can see the sheriff's vans there. Mm. And we see people walking into the building who we know are probably not walking out again. They're probably going out the back. Uh, into the sheriff's vans uh, and uh, where they're taken to detention centers and and uh, sometimes deported, and the very first walk that we did, uh, we we did we we set the tone. You know, we, we we say a prayer at the beginning or actually a reading. We sing a song. We walk the length of, of District Ave, go to Mall Road, stand there, sing a couple of other songs so people can see us walk around the building. And the very first time we did this. Um, it was amazing. First, first of all, somebody came out of the ICE office who had just been released, and he was so very grateful that he was just released, and he came over, and he, he ended up walking with us oh. and, and also speaking to us in Spanish. I don't speak Spanish, but the people who understood Spanish said his words were very, very moving. He was just kept saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, and then, then we did the whole walk, walked behind the building, and uh, wouldn't you know what the door opened in the back of the building and we watched as six men and one woman were brought out with their hands, their, their hands and legs shackled, um, wearing these prison outfits. And, and they, they went down and uh, we stood there holding up our signs, like shouting our support. And uh, I, I even took a little video of the one woman standing there looking so downtrodden. 
Um, and she was just like looking at the ground, and and so and at that moment, the ICE officers started charging towards us, telling us to get away that we we weren't allowed to be there. So we had to move away, but but we were able to show them our support. Very very sad, but but uh, very poignant. Exactly what's happening. And the ICE hears you, and they see you. Yes, they, they hear us and they see us. Um, it's interesting that that they know when we're coming because there are police car, there are ice cars in front of the building, um, and then when we leave, the ice cars leave. So and and we've had people uh, look out the building at us before and kind of wave and it, it's very very sad. But it's the least that we could do is to stand up and show our support. So what do you think the impact of these protests has been? What have you seen so far? Well, so so there there are it's multifaceted impact. First of all, I'm really into video now. I, I do a lot of videos, and I video every single Jericho walk. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that a little later. Okay. Yeah. So 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 I it it um it raises the impact because I put it on YouTube and Facebook, and and so lots more people see the walk than are actually there. Um, and they understand like the purpose of it, and they they share it with others. So just yesterday we walked, and and um, I, I think it's very spiritually moving for everybody who participates. Mm. It kind of reinforces their own values and and makes them want to to try to to change the system even more. And then every single time when we walk, people drive by and honk at us, honk their support. So we know that even though people aren't out there in the line with us walking, they're giving us the thumbs up uh, a lot, honking and just saying like 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 we're with you, and and so it's reinforcing everybody's feeling that that uh, that that this needs to change, and um, so there it, it, it's, there's impact on many many levels. So in addition to the walks, um, what other activities is your organization doing right now or involved in right now? Well, we, uh, not as an organization, but, but the people in the organization are part of different immigrant groups, which helped as one called Beyond, which pres- provides lots of different support for immigrants who, who uh, leave the ICE office or, or they, they raise money for, to get them out of detention, uh, for, to, to post bail, for example. And then when, when they leave detention, uh, they often leave with, with nothing. Like, like this guy who walked out of the office when we were there had like a little orange mesh bag with, with maybe like five little things in it at the bottom of the bag. That was all of his worldly possessions. So, so beyond and other groups that we support get things for people like, like provide, they provide them with all the basic needs and, and drive them. They're people who drive people to, to the airport or drive people to their next destination. Um, they provide legal support. So there are lots of, of uh, different activities like that, that that we don't do as a group, but, but, but individuals in the group are supporting. So this isn't the first time that you have done work around immigration and refugees. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So um, I, when I was growing up, when I was when I was in youth group, I was very involved in the Free Soviet Jewry movement, and I even went to Washington. And I was very involved in that, and I've been involved in that right along. And then. In uh, 1989, uh, when another rabbi asked me if, if our congregation would sponsor a, uh, a, Russian, a Russian Jewish family uh, who needed a sponsor in order to come to this country. So, so I, we did. Our congregation sponsored a family, and I resettled them personally along with the congregation. And that was a real 
Machaya, as they, as they say, for, for, for the whole community. Everybody was so so involved in, in resettling this family and getting an apartment for them and, and filling it with all the furniture and, and stocking their their kitchen and everything. So, so then I got to be very friendly with, with uh, that family. And then I said, um, uh, we were so successful in doing that that I wanted to sponsor a second family. So they said, actually, we know this, this family that really needs to be, that really needs a sponsor to come here and you might like one of the sons. And so, so, so uh, I resettled that family and I ended up marrying uh, one of the sons. And, and, and uh, so, so I was very, very involved in that. And then we actually sponsored a third family. So, so our congregation sponsored three uh, Russian Jewish families um, in our in our community, our little congregation of maybe a hundred and something families. Uh, we, so we have these three families that we've resettled. And, and so it's always been an important aspect of my work is uh, working with refugees. And, and this was very personal, but, uh, but then I, you know, broadened it to, I, I know the feeling of being a refugee for, from my late husband's family. And, and so I, I project that onto all of these other poor people who are coming into the country, trying to come into the country right now and stay in the country. What do you think the role and responsibility of rabbis and other faith leaders is regarding protesting? How does this, you know, your work here tie back to Jewish faith and traditions for you? Okay, well, well, the, the most important rule or law in, in the Torah is love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, that I take that very, very personally. And um, I also take the concept of tikkun olam, repairing the world, very, very personally. I see that as my mission as a human being on this planet. Yeah. And, and as a rabbi who, who, who is supposed to be uh, somebody who holds up Jewish values and, and Jewish mor- morality, like this is the time when we need to stand up and we see an injustice it's up to us. It's our personal responsibility to stand up and do something about it. We can't, like, I just feel like I would not be fulfilling my responsibility as a rabbi, a Jew, or a human being if I did not pursue these actions. So we know that a lot of people are overwhelmed by the sheer volume of upsetting news. I know I am. And I wonder, as I read these things and I feel overwhelmed, how can we find our place, our issue to push back on and equally important how can we stay hopeful as we read these terrible things happening well i I think i think acting is the best way to counteract the feeling of despair or hopelessness i mean i i feel uplifted and and i feel empowered and i feel like like i am contributing to the world in a positive way by taking these actions i think if i was just sitting at home and just watching the news and just shrying gavalt all the time like like that that to me I, I mean i would despair if i was just doing that if i if i was doing nothing that's why i feel compelled to take all of these actions and and on many levels the Jericho walks, uh, the videos that I do, and I, I try to make an impression on, on as many people as I can to support the morals that need to be supported at this moment. So let's talk a little bit about your video series. It's uh, your YouTube channel, I should say. It's called Spiritually Speaking. Uh, it covers the Jericho walks, as you said. It shares some of the things that are happening in your community. It shares important stories and and some adorable Uh, uplifting stories as well, which we do need. Um, In one video, you know, you talk about the current state of anti-Semitism. You speak to various members of your congregation. You speak to Robert Treston, Mm -hmm. executive director of the ADL New England. 
In another, you share the testimony of a Holocaust survivor at right. your temple, and that's yep. a very powerful video that we will be linking to in the show notes of this episode. And um, in some of your videos, you talk about interfaith cooperation and share information about different faith traditions, from the Episcopalian tradition to Islamic traditions to Native American heritage traditions. So what prompted you to start having these conversations in the community and then and then posting them online? So... I, I, as a human being, in addition to tikkun olam, my, the other aspect of myself is that I always need to be doing something creative, and I always need to be bringing people together. So I had written the Rabbi Rockefeller series. I, I also wrote a book called Chala, A Jewish Guide to the Torah, and I, I kind of felt like I was done with, with the literary side of my creative outlet. So I was looking for another way to impact the world, and, and uh, one thing that I've always found challenging is being on TV as the guest. Uh, I remember when I, when I first became a, a rabbi up here, Casey Kaufman came to my temple to interview me and, and other, other news anchors, and, and they would put the, the microphone in my face and I would completely freeze up. Uh, and and uh, it was really embarrassing. So, so I saw this as, as a challenge. Um, and I, I was also watching uh, on my Facebook feed an interview that, that a local minister had done at another cable access TV station. And I thought, hmm, if I was interviewing that minister, I wouldn't do it like this. I would do it like that. And, and I started like thinking of all these ways that I would interview somebody if I had that opportunity. And I walked into the Burlington cable TV station and I said, I have this idea for a TV series. And they're like, Great, go for it. And 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 what? But what inspired me to to do a TV series about a different faith traditions in Burlington was this happened after the president was elected, and I just saw. Actually, no, I'm sorry. It started six months before the election when I first saw the advent of what was what was to come. I kind of saw the writing on the wall, and 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 I saw all this hate. And, and intolerance that was rising in our community and in our country. And I just decided, like, I want to do something specific to help bring people together and de- demystify each other's traditions and backgrounds so that we can see each other as full human beings and, and not have stereotypes about each other. So I decided to do a series called Spiritually Speaking, where, where I would... Every episode would be about a different faith tradition so that when people drove through Burlington, when they would pass a house of worship, they would theoretically say like, like, oh, I just, I just saw an episode about this place. Like this is, I know what, that this is going on inside. I like, like, I know this is their faith leader. I know this is their basic, what their basic beliefs are. Uh, I know that they're, they have kids and like, like these, this is what the kids believe. And, and this, these are some of their traditions. So, so I decided to do that for the town of Burlington and surrounding areas so that, that, it, to demystify each other's traditions and to, to bring people together in the face of, of all this hatred uh, and intolerance that I was seeing on the rise in our community. So in this, during this process, what have you learned that you want other people to know? Well, I, I've, I've learned that we share so much in common, no matter what our faith is, we, we share the same values. Like every single house of worship I went to and every single clergy leader that I spoke to, basically, you know, the, the bottom line is almost interchangeable. Um, it's you know, like the love your neighbor as yourself, you know, like peace and, and harmony and, and, and all of those, those, those most highest ideals and goals and values, we all share them. Uh, the kids who are the most adorable in all of these episodes, 
share the same values and you could re- they're really interchangeable with each other and 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 there's but there's so much richness about each other's traditions that we can learn and, and so many interesting ways that different people express uh, their religiosity that that's uh, really fascinating. Um, one of the most fascinating places I went to was the Hindu temple in Burlington, um, which is really very different because you walk in and basically there are gods like all around the room and you walk from one god to the next god and it, it's very, very complicated and, and it's very foreign, but, but bottom line is the same values and the same goals. So that's, I think, the most important thing for us all to know. I think that's really interesting, something that's diametrically opposed to, conceptually, right. to Judaism. Exactly. You know, we don't have idols, we don't have, or images, you know, that's a, that's a no-no for us. But at the bottom, at the baseline, you're saying that yep. we all have these similar values, these similar uh, wishes and hopes for peace. Absolutely. And, and another one that I wanted to raise up was the one I did about uh, Native Americans, yes. because there are so many stereotypes that we have that we take for granted. And one of the most poignant moments of that episode was when, when I was talking to Claudia Foxtree, who's, who's a Native American activist, and talking about Columbus Day and the meaning of it for Native Americans. She said, well, well how would you feel if every year uh, Jew, uh, the, our country was celebrating Hitler Day? And that just like really, great. <laughs> really punched me in the gut, and that really brought home to me just how horrible uh, uh, that holiday is for Native Americans, and, and it prompted me to learn more about it. And and there are lots of other issues that Native Americans have to deal with that that we really really need to be sensitized to, including Thanksgiving, which 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 totally. is, is a which is becoming more and more problematic the more I think about it and learn about it. How are the ways that you think faith communities can take that information in and turn it into activism? Well, I, I, th- I think that we need to have lots of interfaith activities, and, and I try to do that as much as possible. Um, I'm the chair of the Burlington Interfaith Clergy Committee, and uh, we in Burlington every year have two uh, community interfaith events where where we all come together and and the first is a unfortunately Thanksgiving service. You're <laughs> well, repurposing it for right. a positive right. reason. Yes, yes, and and uh, so so at the beginning of this year's Thanksgiving service, one of the local ministers is going to talk about the rebranding of this and and this and and the sensitivities that we need to have yeah. around this. So so we're working on that. And the other the other event that we have every year is um, an interfaith Holocaust memorial service where everybody comes to the temple and we have a Holocaust speaker. Um, and that's very, very moving for, for lots of uh, the non-Jewish clergy and, and members of the non-Jewish community who come. But but we often have activities um, where we get together and talk about like life after death and, and the different views on that. Uh, we, the Jewish community and the Muslim community in Burlington have been particularly active together. Uh, a few years ago, we had the Muslim community come to the temple, and we had a Shalom Salam Shabbat. So we started off in the sanctuary, and I and I we did a quick Shabbat service where I taught about the about Shabbat, and then we went out to the front hall, and the, the Muslim our Muslim friends did a their evening prayer in the front hall, and then we all went back to the social hall and had a huge feast together, and we had about uh, 150 200 people, equal number of Muslims and Jews, and we all sat together and got to know each other, and it was really a wonderful wonderful occasion. And then and then with Pittsburgh after the Pittsburgh shooting, 
everybody came to the temple. Like, like we had 30 clergy on the bima for the for the Pittsburgh memorial service. Mm. We never had so many people in the congregation in our life. We had to have a, a satellite a TV in our social hall, which was completely full. Uh, one of the a moment that brought me to tears was, was uh, the door opened during the service and all these members of the Muslim community walked in and sat in the back, and the imam came up and sat next to me, and he usually doesn't, won't sit next to a woman because it's very traditional. Uh, so that was a very, very moving experience for all of us, and it showed us just how much we're integrated into the community. And, and then after the Christchurch shooting, we, I, I organized an event in front of the, the Islamic Center where we formed two lines of people from the interfaith community for their Friday prayer so that members of the community could walk through the two lines of comfort into their into their um, into their building, and then I actually was the first woman to ever speak there because they're very um, again traditional. So women don't usually speak. So I had the honor of being the first one to speak to them after that tragedy. So we, we do a lot for each other. Okay, in we in Lexington did not know half the things going on in Burlington. This is amazing. You need to watch this show. I really Her do. YouTube channel. I, I do. I do. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's part of why we're talking to you today, because someone from your congregation contacted us at the podcast and mm -hmm. said, you really need to talk to this rabbi about the work she's doing. And we're so glad um, that that person did. Oh, thank so you. So what, let's end on this. What gives you hope? Well, what gives me hope is that people really want to, to do the right thing. Most people do care a lot about each other, and most people want to stand up to hate and most people want to come together in community, and and that so I'm I'm highly involved in that kind of work, and that really gives me hope to see all the people who have those values and share those morals. Well, Rabbi Abramson, thank you so much for joining us today and telling us about all these really important things that you've done and that you are doing, and uh, keep on strength to you. And thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. For more information about Rabbi Susan Abramson and her work, check out the show notes. Be sure to follow at Jewish Boston on social media and subscribe to The Vibe of the Tribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or TuneIn. You can also email us at podcast at jewishboston.com with your comments, feedback, and ideas for future topics and guests. Thanks, as always, to our editor, Jesse, and our composer, Ryan. Ryan.